So there's just like a card from a bailiff saying urgent. And I know that I'm about to be served papers. And I was just like, it's now 10 o'clock at night. I don't know what this is about. It doesn't tell you anything, who it's coming from, what it's about. There's no, nothing I can do except stay up all night long and think, have I done anything wrong? Do I owe anybody money? Have I upset an employee? Like, who wants to sue me? I don't understand. Let's rewind a little bit. Before all this, there was a fire. And before the fire, there was an idea. To get nutritious food to those who needed it the most. Kiffin's origin story begins in San Francisco with two people, Natasha Alani and Chef Aaron Featherston. Here's what was important to them. Food access, sustainability, and a good work life for people in the food industry. They both had experience in the industry and had a vision of a different world. One where everyone could eat well, while the people preparing the food could live well. But it was around 2011 when I was like, this is just not okay. The way people are being treated, the way the middle class is eating, especially in the U.S., the fact that what you put in your body affects your cognitive ability, and then we're expecting all people to earn the same amount of money and be just as smart and competitive. I was just like, yeah, we need to do school, but we also need to make sure that kids are eating well or, you know, so I was sure this is what I wanted to work on and sure that I had a concept and I really wanted to do a business that was, that had a brand that wasn't a nonprofit. I had spent 10 years working in social work, specifically on issues of inequality. And one of the businesses I ran was a cafe that hired people with severe mental illness. Um, so I'd been, I'd been working from the nonprofit or like semi-profit where it's a social enterprise that makes money, but not really. Um, and I knew that I wanted a really, really good business that had an amazing brand and that all the social pieces were baked in, and that if I had enough demand, I can affect the system. Instead of trying to change the system and then draw the demand to it, or try to get the demand with a business model that didn't actually work, but was cheaper, and then it cheapens the whole situation, and I don't think systems actually change that way. It has to be a real business with a solid model that will change the system. This is Made at McGill, an origin story podcast about McGill University's makers, aka entrepreneurs and innovators. How did these students, researchers, and alumni figure out how to make the world a better place? Well, it's complicated, but keep listening. It's a good story. This show is brought to you by the McGill Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. Our mission is to inspire, teach, and develop world-class entrepreneurs. You can learn more at mcgill.ca slash Dobson. And we were in San Francisco, and what I found was that really, really, really wealthy people liked our food. And getting to the people who really needed it was getting very hard and very expensive. Like, I could quickly sell my food to tech companies who understood all this stuff but uh, and had the pockets to pay. But if I wanted to get to the people I really wanted to get to, I needed to increase my um, scale. And to, inc- to scale even a little bit more there was so expensive that I couldn't do it. And I was like, okay, so either I sell out or I give up or I find another way. 
and that's when we decided to come to Montreal because no one considered it a place that you should go. So I was like, ah, I'm early enough. <laughs> like in San Francisco, when we told people we were moving to Montreal, they were just like, why? Why not go to Austin? Why not go to Nashville? Oh, okay, why not okay. go to Boston? And I was like, this is telling me that I'm right. Like I, it's early enough, it's the right place. And I had been following Montreal for five years. I wanted to move here for a long time. And I had watched tremendous activity year after year after year. So much new stuff was happening. It's amazing. So that's why. At the same time, she applied for McGill's MBA program and McGill was her dream school. So when she got in, she was ecstatic. But here's what separated Natasha from most MBAs. She was doing it while building a real business. You started the M your MBA to build your business. Yeah. Who does that? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would have made it through the MBA if I didn't have my business. And, you know, grad school's not cheap. Mm -hmm. So it's a really... It takes a crazy kind of person to choose to start a business where the rewards are uncertain when you know you're going to have a bunch of debt. <laughs> really, it brought my education to life because everything had a real-time correlation for me. Um... I mean, I think I did I did well in school because I had this little baby with me that I was so interested in and so inspired by. Anyways, Natasha and Erin moved to Montreal, and it it wasn't easy. It was really difficult, um, especially because I couldn't understand everything I saw. Um, the language barrier. Yeah. Okay. Um, all the business papers in, in Quebec are French, and they're not translated. But they got through it, and it was fine. Next, it was time to find their first customer and make their first sale. I got the first order, and that was for 30 people at McGill, and, you know, we didn't even have a kitchen or anything like that, and it's a rather big order and for a good margin. And so we, you know, we did the order, we weren't a real business yet. We didn't even know how we were going to take the money, you know. <laughs> um, but we had the first customer and we were able to make the money work. And we bought like, we had 200 bucks and we bought a few pieces of equipment and then away we went. And everyone was so happy and it was very, very stressful for us. We were in a 600 square foot apartment making that much food. Um, but in the end, people were happy. It looked professional and it, you know, told me that Aaron and I could make this work. And so is for the, the so we started that way. Immediately after that I went to the uh, McGill Legal Clinic mm -hmm. and asked, you know, how legal is it for me to cook out of the house <laughs> and what do I need to do next? I just don't understand. It's really hard to find the information online. So they came back to me with specifics about how much food you can legally manufacture out of your home. Uh, the rules are not they're, they seem fair. You know, there's a volume that you can do and then there's a volume you can't. And then um, they told me what kind of licenses I need, just the basic stuff. Then she set up all the business infrastructure stuff, a.k.a. the boring, responsible adult stuff that you inevitably have to do when you've got a business. She incorporated her company, set up a payment system through Square, and got a license to sell. She got her food safety certificates and her insurance. All the things they needed to operate as a real food business. And by the way, if you want free startup legal advice, 
check out McGill's Compass Startup Legal Clinic. Just Google it or go to compassclinic.org. That was a really smart move because very quickly after that, the order started to grow significantly. It went from like a like a $500 order to a $2,000 order to a $4,000 order to a $10,000 order. That I would say the next step, I think two weeks after my first order, we applied and got into the Lean Launchpad in my first semester, which was bizarre. It's crazy. The first semester of grad school is so is supposed to be the worst. Or in the MBA, it's like it's called the core, and you basically like marriages end. It's so it's so tough. <laughs> you say goodbye to your loved ones and your friends. And I added a three hour course essentially <laughs> with the Lean yeah. Launchpad program. <laughs> so we continued catering, doing all our business. The catering side was going super well. You know, the numbers just kept climbing. Um, we were seeing, you know, better than last year. Outcome was great. And then we geared up for the open. We had a line waiting out the door. We had amazing staff that we adored. Um, we felt like we'd made, we were doing, we were really excited to be at the center of food and social justice. And we met amazing people in the fire. You've rhymed there. Did you hear that? No. You said, um, we had so many people lined up at the door. We had staff that we adore. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Kiffin had made $200,000 in revenue that year from catering, and they were on track to open their restaurant. Everything seemed to be just perfect. But as with any story, all good things come to an end. The next chapter of Kiffin's story is the fire. But before that, a quick message from the Dobson Center. I've noticed there are two characters when it comes to McGill entrepreneurs, and I want to use this break to talk about the first one, Contemplative Connor. These are the people who are interested in entrepreneurship but haven't fully dived in yet. If that sounds like you, we can help. The McGill Dobson Center has packaged a toolkit of useful resources to inspire you, teach you, and help you meet other entrepreneurs. Everything is either on campus or in the cloud. First, our blog featuring lessons learned from startup events and interviews with successful McGill entrepreneurs at dobsonchronicles.com. Second, our weekly events, which are free and open to the public. You can get our full calendar at miguel.ca slash dobson slash events. And finally, Miguel Dobson Match. Whether you're recruiting for your startup or you're looking to join one, sign up at miguel.dobsonmatch.com to get started. At the next break, I'll talk to you about the second character, Committed Carol. Now, back to the show. Fast forward a little bit, and Kiffin finds a space that they love. So they open the restaurant, and for six days, things are just great. Now, it was, of course, the calm before the storm, but let's take a second and just enjoy the moment. Six days were amazing. There was a line outside the door. Um, when we opened, uh, we were getting momentum, we were getting news coverage, we were really off to the races. And- Okay, a moment enjoyed. Six great days. Day seven, Natasha gets a phone call. Yeah, I got a call at 7 a.m. from the landlord. 
And she said, Natasha, there's been a fire, but it's mostly in my place. I don't think it's going to be a big deal for you. Just call your insurance um, and you might want to come here. So I was like, okay. I, I went about my day, actually got a bunch of other things done. And I called the insurance and made my way to the location at around 10. And that's when I saw that this was much more serious. But even at that time, so basically the ceiling had fallen in. <laughs> from a few of the major areas um and there was you know you could smell the smoke it was it was hard to breathe uh the kitchen was destroyed the bathroom was destroyed but I, but when you entered the first few rooms were fairly fine and i thought okay it's still not that big of a deal <laughs> and i think that's because as an entrepreneur you have to be fairly optimistic and kind of look past the things that could go wrong. And so the, the me that makes me a good entrepreneur was like, it's not so bad. We can handle this. It's not so bad. We can handle this. Um, so actually those first few days were not as bad as the next few months. What happened in the next few months? Uh, that's when we realized that the, um, that the damage was much worse than we expected. Um, it wasn't for two months before anybody told us that there was asbestos in the building and that the repair was going to take longer. And even in that moment, nobody told, I st we still didn't know when we were going to get the place back. So I always had hope that it would be another month. It was, it was one month, two months, coming on three months of us not knowing what was going to happen and trying to tread water when there's like nothing to tread with. Um, so that's when it got very, very, very bad. In some industries, a few months off might not seem like a big deal. You go on a meditation retreat, do some volunteering, travel for a bit, and come back to resume where you left off. But the restaurant industry is cutthroat, and that market just doesn't wait for you while holding your hand. Kiffin lost the lead that they had in the race. So we had a concept, we had a vision, we had offerings that were so relevant and on point, and... We exposed it to everybody. We basically launched the business with a bunch of good ideas and first mover advantage, and then we were shut. Now, the number of businesses that use the same design as us, whether they're copying or it's just timing, who knows and who cares? But there's a lot of other businesses that look exactly like us now. There's a lot of other businesses who do just the exact same courses as we used to do. And I mean, all the things, like our whole strategy was laid bare and then we were like okay peace go take it have fun we're gonna just not do business for six months um and just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse she got an ominous letter when something like the fire happens there are a lot of stakeholders and they're all looking out for themselves um and so one of those people had a triggered reaction caused by their insurance to serve me a letter informing me of certain actions that they needed me to get to take. Um, so the, the, the really terrifying thing about this was that the letter was served to me after hours and I wasn't there in my home. So there's just like a card from a bailiff saying urgent and I know that I'm about to be served papers and I was just like 
it's now 10 o'clock at night. I don't know what this is about. It doesn't tell you anything, who it's coming from, what it's about. There's no, nothing I can do except stay up all night long and think, have I done anything wrong? Do I owe anybody money? Have I upset an employee? Like, who wants to sue me? I don't understand. And, the, the, you know, the great thing that came from that is that by 6 a.m. I was like, there's no way. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what could happen. And, then, and if this is like a litigious American-style, like, person about to sue me, then they're off their rocker because I got nothing to sue for. So it was like a kind of an interesting way for me to calm myself down. And then at 8 o'clock, I finally talked to the bailiff, and he still didn't tell me who it's from. And we finally met up and I got the letter and I, I was at McGill when I got it and I read it and it was just a very heavy handed way of reminding me what my responsibilities were from somebody that I thought I had a relationship with. So when they chose to get a lawyer to do this, it seemed to me it, it was basically step one, should they need to sue me? And I, I, was completely jarred and I didn't understand um, and I didn't understand why anyone would do something like that. Kiffin hit bottom. And when you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. It was time for Natasha and Aaron to start climbing out of hell. That's what's coming up next right after this quick message from the Dobson Center. Back to my very unscientific observations. Let's talk about the second character, Committed Carol. She's ready to move her business forward fast. If this sounds like you, the Miguel Dobson Center offers a slightly different package. Three dedicated and selective programs to help you build your startup. That's one each semester. First, the Miguel Lean Startup Program is our part-time fall incubator for early-stage startups. Second, the McGill Dobson Cup is our winter startup competition offering over $150,000 in prize money, as well as exclusive access to world-class mentors. And finally, the McGill X1 Accelerator is our full-time summer accelerator for later stage startups to get you investment ready and fly you to demo days all over the continent. To learn more or apply for these programs, visit mcgill.ca slash dobson. Now, back to the show. A lot of people have been involved in our business, and it does take a village to get a startup off the ground. Uh, and I also, at the same time, had to make sure that all of them knew that we were going to make it. At the, when I didn't actually know how we were going to make it. Um, uh, we luckily uh, had a bunch of friends move into our place. We basically rented out every square inch of our home that we could. We tightened up anywhere that the money could go out. Um, and we were lucky enough to be admitted into the Exxon Accelerator. And I think that was a saving grace for us because it allowed me to, it forced me to think about the bigger picture when I you know, I was in a very bad place. <laughs> and it was like the hardest thing to do is think, think big again when I was really concerned about like things about life, life and death. Um, so that was... That's insane. Your thing, this happened in May and like that's when the deadline was. I, I came in the day after to pitch to you guys. Yeah. And kept my nerves steely. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was shaking just outside when we got in and I remember like fighting back tears and was like, I need to do this and I want this and we need this and we're going to be fine. And again, like at that point, it was so fresh that I didn't know the extent 
I thought that by the time the program started, we'd be back in business, and Aaron would be there, and we'd be I'd be at X one. But if I didn't pull myself together, even in the face of uncertainty, I would have missed out on that opportunity. I would have not done a good job. I would have given in to how I felt, and and you know we really really considered the Exxon Accelerator transformative for us, regardless of what was happening to the rest of the business. There's this funny thing that happens after really bad things, catastrophes, tragedies, black swans, whatever you want to call them. All of a sudden, the world slows down for a second, and things become really clear. You're able to filter through the noise and find the signal. You're able to see what really matters, and Natasha took full advantage of that. You know, we stand for three things. We stand for sustainability in food, sustainability in employment practices in the food industry, and access to food for everyone. And that's also sustainability in like the food system. How are we getting the food we get, and how do we do it sustainably at a price that everyone can afford? And that's what's most important. And when you lose everything. It was. It became even more clear. Like, what am I protecting? I'm not protecting my reputation. I'm not protecting this space. I have very little to lose left. You know, I lost my spot. What else can you take from me? Um, so it was like this is all that matters, and we became very, very clear about it, and we're willing to do whatever we needed to to make it survive. And the staff got behind that too. It was really amazing. They did their own fundraisers. They, you know, stayed in touch. They were like, okay, some had to make money to survive, mm-hmm. but continued to stay engaged because they wanted to make sure that we got that vision done. So the good thing one was that we were very, very more clear than ever about what we stand for, um, and out of that, we were able to earn some credibility. Um, the business. Itself, I mean, there's parts of business that I thought I knew and I had no idea about. I got an MBA and an undergraduate in finance, and there's stuff that you only learn when there's a fire um, or something of this extreme. You know, everything from how the intricacies of how to bank, how a bank works, and how your relationship with the bank can be, the intricacies of insurance. The fire may have been a blessing in disguise. It gave them the time and perspective to be able to take a step back and develop their business, develop their network, and think really big. I don't know if I already said that. But the X1 was one of the best things that came from it because we were able to give it more time than we ordinarily would have. Um, Chef Aaron was like actually involved, and it's very rare to get a chef who gets to spend that much time thinking about business. Um, we, we were so happy to have him. <laughs> He's, he's amazing, but the world of food just doesn't allow for people like that to get to do the things that we did, and that I'm really grateful for. Um, the, the demo days, you know, that was like a dream come true, and we would never have been able to do that if if the fire hadn't happened and taken as long as it took. Mm. You know, we would have had to say, look, we have to prioritize what's happening here and now. But it was an amazing opportunity for me to not only get the word out about our business, but to understand what's happening in other cities and to see how people are perceiving things differently. Um, of course, we got interest from investors, which is total, incredibly validating. Um 
Yeah, we got to see what's actually happening on the ground. We met other food entrepreneurs. It was, I would say, the best thing that came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about hard times. It's only later that you can connect the dots backward and see how they made you stronger. It's like Steve Jobs said in his Stanford commencement speech. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. Hey, it's Mo. I hope you enjoyed that story. If you want easier access to upcoming episodes of Made at McGill, I recommend you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use. Also, do you have a wantrepreneur in your life? Maybe your Uncle Bill, who's always talking about his grand business ideas. Consider this. Find one episode in this podcast that you think could give them a slight push. The little nudge that they need to begin their journey as a maker. And have them listen to that episode. And if Uncle Bill ends up turning into the next Bill Gates, who changes the world and along the way becomes a genius billionaire philanthropist, hey, you can take all the credit. Thanks for listening. <laughs>